0: From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. Last week, President Donald Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, resigned from his position. And the story made headlines across the world.
1: The headline tonight, yet another staff shakeup in the Trump White House. National Security Advisor John Bolton is out. On his final morning as Donald Trump's National Security Advisor, John Bolton stepped outside
2: the West Wing, it would seem, for some privacy. Inside, a president with whom Bolton was now irreparably incompatible. John Bolton's priorities and policies just don't line up with the president's, so the president made a change.
1: The United States is facing foreign policy challenges on multiple fronts, from places like Iran, North Korea, Russia, and China. And with John Bolton now leaving the White House, there are huge questions about how we will confront all of these challenges. Bolton was Trump's third national security advisor in less than three years. That means tonight, put a different way, they are searching for their fourth national security advisor in three years' time.
0: Well, as we record this podcast today, President Trump has just announced that he will nominate U.S. hostage negotiator Robert O'Brien to replace John Bolton. So how important is this role? With all of the recent media coverage, it seems pretty high profile, right? Yet it's not a cabinet role. Today's guest, James Carafano, explains the history and evolution of the role of National Security Advisor. For example, did you know that Reagan had six national security advisors? We discuss what the nature of the job actually is and if there is any real effect on policy. Plus, we chat about Carafano's new mini-documentary about 9-11. James Carafano is a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges, I'm sure you've seen him on Fox News. He's on the air constantly. He's also the vice president of Heritage's Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and the E.W. Richardson Fellow. So, Jim, I wanted to talk with you today a little bit about U.S. national security and the role of national security advisor. We see a lot of faces on TV, and sometimes it could be hard to know who's calling what shots. What exactly is the role of national security advisor?
1: Well, there's the statutory role, which when the National Security Council was uh, set up in the National Security Act of 1947... Which was literally to run the staff. The National Security Council originally focused on the cabinet members, key cabinet members coming together to advise the president in a more formal way than that we had done in the past. Um, It was only really, you know, Henry Kissinger, who when he was the national security advisor for President uh, Nixon, who really transformed that into a much more high profile position because Henry Kissinger acted not just as a coordinator to the staff, but more importantly, as an independent advisor to the president himself. Uh, in many ways, Kissinger saw himself on par of the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. So there's always been this kind of duality to the National Security Advisor as a advisor to the president, as a spokesperson for the president's policy, and as also somebody who is coordinating policy staff. The way it was envisioned was... It, the, there would be an issue that the, the White House would put out and then the individual departments would kind of work on it and they would bring it up and coordinate it at various levels till it got up to the cabinet level and then everybody in the cabinet would agree and then they would go and explain it to the, the president. Um, but it's it's become much bigger than that. And, it's, and the other thing is it's changed. And it depends on the president. So what
0: do you think makes a good national security advisor? Should they be on par with a secretary of defense or state?
1: What makes a great national security advisor is an advisor who helps the president get to the policies the president wants to implement. So, for example, nobody had a more chaotic national security process and more national security advisors than Ronald Reagan. Uh, we, we look backwards now and we say that the Reagan years were this unbelievable continuity of focused, like a, a lightning bolt, you know, get the Soviet Union and- and and I think some people remember the Iran Contra scandal, which was which was um, involved some of the National Security Council staff. But you know, Reagan, with a number of National Security Advisors, uh, it was actually a fairly chaotic process. Mm. Um, but in the end, Iran Contra and other issues aside, Reagan got his policies done. In contrast, when uh, Jimmy Carter came to the presidency, he actually didn't like the Kissinger model of this kind of all powerful National Security Advisor. He wanted a much more typical bureaucratic process, actually very similar to the kind of process that we had under uh, Eisenhower, who is probably the president who really developed the National Security Council staff the most. And uh, And he put all this in place and he had a, a very wonderful system and it produced really terrible policy <laughs> and, and, there, and a lot of c- confusion and chaos. So it, it's not really about how the process works. It's about the outcomes, right? It, you know, people go to a go to see a ballet or an opera, they have no idea what's going on, but it looks pretty and it sounds good and they leave happy, right? That's not what national security making is all about. It's not about the process that you go through. It's about what you put out at the opposite end that matters. And 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 I would argue in the case of Trump, it doesn't matter who the national security advisor is and it doesn't matter how pretty or unpretty you think the process is. We're putting out good policy. And when people ask me, what is the significance about the president changing out John Bolton as national security advisor? You know, part of my answer is, well, on it, not much. It was the president's foreign policy before he got there. It was the president's foreign policy while he got there. And it will be the president's foreign policy after he leaves because the president is decider in chief.
0: So if that's the case, did Bolton leave his mark
1: at all? I think John Bolton did make a difference is in many ways, as opposed to the man for all seasons, John Bolton was the right guy for Trump at that part of his presidency. And and what I mean by that is, is Trump's foreign policy has actually been very consistent. I mean, he looks at the world and he sees who is really threatening us. And, and and, it's often called great power competition, but who are the, the, the the main forces we have to worry about? obviously, Uh, extremism uh, represented by the Taliban, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. And the president has been consistent in all those competitions in the sense that on the one hand, he shows a strong face. He demonstrates the willingness to protect U.S. interests, whether it's getting NATO to kick in 2% so we can have a strong deterrent against Russia, whether it's going through a trade dispute with China, whether it's putting pressure on the... uh, maximum pressure on the Iranians or pressure on the North Koreans to come to the negotiating table. In every case, he starts out by saying, nobody's going to take me seriously unless I'm showing I'm willing to put skin in the game and defend my interests. But having done that, uh, he, he, he always puts an off-ramp out there. So he goes, if the other guy recognizes that I'm willing to defend my interests and they want to negotiate something that respects my interests, let's do that. And we've seen that diplomatic off-ramp With In every one of these competitions, um, willingness to have trade negotiations with the the Chinese, um, keeping an open door with Putin. Uh, um, And even when he pulled out of the Iran deal, the last thing he said in the speech was, if the Iranians want to come back to the table and do a real deal, I'm all in for that.
0: Did you see this approach with his move with the Taliban last week? Because many say that's the very argument that led to Bolton leaving the administration wanting to bring the Taliban to Camp David last weekend for peace negotiations. You've said there was logic in that meeting.
1: Right. And I think in many ways, you could argue this is why John Bolton's time had passed. Bolton was very useful advising the president getting tough on the other guys. Where I think John and the president differ is the president always wants to put the negotiating option on the table. Bolton is, no, you only negotiate essentially after the enemy's already surrendered. Right. And and where talking to the Taliban made sense, I think, for the president was having, you know, people could say, well, we can't win the war in Afghanistan, right? Well, what are the Taliban doing at the negotiating table? Well, the Taliban are there because they know they can't win the war either, right? So they're negotiating with the United States because they know they can't win, right? And, and that, I think, was the president being strong. And then I think then, so, OK, if you know you can't win, Let's talk. And I think the reason why he was inviting them to uh, Camp David was not, in a sense, forgetting the memory of nine eleven. Look, nobody more than the president understands the importance of nine eleven. He's a New Yorker. I mean, he knows the terrorists would have been just as happy to kill him and his family as anybody else. He's not going to be soft on these guys. But what he was looking at as Camp David, going back to, remember, the Camp David Accords, which is when we brought the Israelis and the Egyptians to Camp David, and, and we said, look, you guys— may, have to make the peace. I am watching. I will support you, but the the it's on your shoulders to make the peace. That was the message of Camp David. I think that's why the President wanted to bring the Taliban and the Afghan government there to say, "Look, we'll sign this deal, but the pressure's on you to make this deal happen. And if you look at what the u s was actually doing, we weren't going to walk away from Afghanistan. We still had a residual force to uh, provide that. so I think the the President was doing what I would call smart diplomacy, and
0: he was right then to end the meeting.
1: And I think right to pull the plug because, the, look, the Taliban just want us to leave. And if we just continued on and said and, and say, yeah, well, let's talk anyway, even though you've committed a, a terrible terrorist attack, that's the wrong message. The message we're sending us is, we want a real peace process that you're going to commit to, not we want to sign a piece of paper so we can get out the back door. So I, I think the president sent exactly the right message. Look, and he put the Taliban on their heels. U.S. intelligence is collecting data from around the world the Taliban thought we were just going to sign a deal and walk away. And they're like emailing their buddies saying, hey, come back to Afghanistan. You know, as soon as the Americans leave, we'll just march back into Kabul. And, and this really caught them flat footed. They, they, they go, oh, no, the president really is serious about we'll do a deal if there's a good deal to be had. And so I think he was right to offer the meeting. And I think he was right to cancel it.
0: Jim, I do want to talk about your new documentary. And I think this is a perfect place. Last week was the 18th anniversary of 9-11, and you released a documentary called Why We Fight, 9-11 and America's Longest War. It's only 20 minutes long, which I actually really think adds to how powerful it is. What motivated you to write and direct that documentary?
1: Well, one was uh, one of the guys that was there on that day is a guy named Steve Bucci, who used to work here at Heritage. And Steve was actually uh, the military assistant for Don Rumsfeld. He was in the Pentagon uh, on, on the day of 9-11. And Steve has an incredible personal story talking about not just the attack that day, but how we recovered to it, how we got back on our feet, uh, how America, you know, went right back to the, the the business of defending America's interests. I thought that was a powerful story for people to hear. You know, also look, this terrorist threat is still with us. We 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 just saw that, you know, with the ongoing struggling with the with the Taliban. ISIS is still out there. We just took out the son of Osama bin Laden. So the terrorist threat hasn't gone away. And I, I, I think it was an important story that Americans need to hear again. And and what we wanted to do was to focus on the attack on the Pentagon because it hasn't gotten near the attention as the attack on uh, New York City. And there are some really powerful stories. One of my, the stories I'll never forget, it just haunts me, is the goal was to get the Pentagon up and running again by the first anniversary of 9-11. And so they brought in all these contractors, and they're working furiously to rebuild that wing of the Pentagon. So on the, the anniversary of 9-11, we could say the Pentagon is 100% open for business. So they actually got to Christmas Eve and they were actually a little bit ahead of schedule because they'd been working seven days a week. And the government went to the contractors and they said, you know what? Why don't you just let everybody take Christmas off? And the, the workforce came back and said, no. They said the troops in the field aren't taking the day off. The Taliban, the Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, they need, and they want, they wanted to work Christmas day so they could be, Done in time. That's and beautiful. they actually they actually got done a little ahead of schedule.
0: Yeah, that, that's a really powerful story. That's incredible. I also want to highlight the fact that you have young people leading the interviews in this documentary. And I think that's important because I was a young person on 9-11. I was in college. And I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now had it not happened. It changed the trajectory of my entire career. But the people who lead the documentary's narrative, they were younger. They were just children in middle school and elementary school.
1: Right. So what we did is we actually took uh, three young professionals who uh, were in grade school when 9-11 happened, who actually had very hazy recollections, even though as professionals, they've been dealing with the aftermath of their entire professional life. And we got some camera crews and we said, go find out what happened and why and what it means. And so they picked some uh, people to interview and talk to, and and they went out, and in a sense, they made this narrative. It's their journey of discovering of why why the world in which they grew up with, why that happened and what that means and what it means for Americans going forward. And um, it's really interesting. One of them actually is uh, an immigrant. Uh, um, Fred was was born in Brazil and was actually a in school in Brazil when this happened. Um, it's, so it's a diverse group of men, young men and women. Um, and it, it's kind of, it's just a fascinating film to just kind of watch watch their journey. Um,
0: I think it would be great for schools too. There's been a lot of discussion about how our education system is going to teach children today about 9-11 and that they haven't really started doing it yet. But something like this 20-minute film would be a good introduction
1: I think they did a terrific job on the film. So the, the film is called Why We Fight uh, in America's Longest War. We wanted it to be as accessible as possible. So what we did is we put it on YouTube. Yeah. So if you just type in Why We Fight in America's Longest War on YouTube, the film will pop up. You can watch it. You can download it. You can share it. Uh, it is only 20 minutes long. I, I thought the, the filmmakers did an incredible job considering – they were just, you know, novice kids who'd never made a movie before. Um, it was a, a joy to kind of produce the film and, and uh, watch them. And it. And I, you know, look. I know all these stories, but I got to tell you, every time I watch that film, one, I always tear up. And two, at the end, my heart just swells for Americans forget what an amazing people we are, how resilient we are, how strong we are, what we can accomplish when we really want to. I, I just found it all very, it was an inspiring project to work on.
0: Jim, we always enjoy chatting with you. Thank you. We're going to link to the documentary in our show notes, and we're actually going to play a clip from it right now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Tim will be back next week with a new episode of Heritage Explains. My name is Madison Hutchinson. On 9-11, I was seven years old and in the second grade. I lived in Somerset, Kentucky, and attended Victory Christian School. So I don't remember much except thinking my parents were watching a really scary movie, and it just made me cry, and obviously they were crying.
1: My name is Fred Bartels. I was 14 years old on the day that 9-11 happened. I was in eighth grade in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. I remember people telling me like very vague stories because no one really knew what happened, and people thought it was just a prop plane hitting a TV tower or something like that.
0: My name is Anna Quintana on 9-11. I was 15 years old in the ninth grade at Barbara Goldman High School in Miami, Florida. To get to my mom's job, she'd have to drive on the highway and it was right by the airport and I was just always terrified every single day like when she went back to work a few days later. So I heard Osama bin Laden's hiding in the caves and the only cave I knew of was Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. (laughs) So I was scared to go on my field trip because I thought Osama bin Laden was hiding in Mammoth Cave. Yeah, I say a lot of people our age don't understand why we're still fighting in the Middle East. It's long after 9/11. It's really incredible to think that we are that we're still at war as a result of that. I mean, we're here in DC. We work in foreign policy. We've got a lot of friends who were probably in DC on 9/11 when the plane hit the Pentagon. We should talk to them. The foreign policy community was definitely engaged in 9/11. So let's do it. I thought I'd first talk to Robin Simcox, who works in D.C. as a counterterrorism analyst.
2: Al Qaeda is a terrorist group headed by Osama bin Laden, who was a very wealthy Saudi terrorist. They uh, had an organization which had taken root in Afghanistan shortly before
0: 9/11. Tell me about Al Qaeda's role on 9/11.
2: Al-Qaeda had financed, planned, executed 9-11. It was something that was in the making for months and months. It was something that they had very carefully devised as being an attack on America's military and financial and political capitals, something that they'd been planning for years but was going to be their greatest statement of intent to date.
0: In 1998, they put out a declaration of jihad against the United States, in which they said, end the occupation of our lands. They looked at several examples of where the U.S. had been attacked just one time and run for it.
1: So the idea was that they would attack New York and the U.S. would leave everywhere else. The US
0: would get the message that it was too painful for us to stay in places like Saudi Arabia, and we'd withdraw our occupying forces from the entire Muslim world. They've talked repeatedly about world domination as their ultimate goal.
2: Al-Qaeda's intent with this attack was to fundamentally alter the way of life of Americans and America itself.
0: Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher with editing by Thalia Rampersad.